As you grab a seat, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 12. Uh, Hopefully I primed the pump for you last week that uh, we're taking a little bit bigger chunk uh, than what we typically do. Um, You know that the pattern uh, that we've, we've had of of walking through uh, Scripture over the last six, seven years has been a book at a time and, and usually a chapter or passage at a time. Uh, and so typically we read through the entire passage that we're going to be covering um, for the, for the uh, sermon at the beginning. Um, but today we're covering Joshua chapter 12, well chapters 12 through 21. Uh, and so we can't read through it all. Uh, we can, um, but your eyes will glaze and I'll lose you. Um, so I encouraged you last week, to hopefully if you did, uh, there's no shame if you didn't, but if you read ahead of time, you at least have a framework. Um, I heard it referenced uh, in, in, a, in a way, what we're going to do this morning is kind of skate across the top of these chapters. Um, there is more that we could uh, kind of glean from, from each one as an individual, but really the, the heart of chapters 12 through 21 is, is all kind of a united thought in the book of Joshua, and so it's really impossible for us to just separate it out and parcel it out. Uh, But through the first 11 chapters, what we've been looking at is God's handing over the land of promise to his people. Uh, And that has primarily been taking place in the first 11 chapters through military conquest, right? God has been delivering by conquest the people of Israel into the land of promise. And at the end of chapter 11, one of the key verses that then transitions us into a different focus in the next 10 chapters as we move forward is uh, chapter 11, verse 23. And there's a transitional verse that took place last week, and we're going to pick up with it right here. It says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And so you have this, this transition that there's, a, there's a, a rest from the military struggles and strife, but then there's a move towards the land being allotted out as an inheritance to the people of Israel. And so chapters 12 through 21 are, are going to have this major focus of how the land gets broken up by tribe at a time, parcel at a time to the people of Israel. And so in some ways, when you read through this, chunk of scripture, it can kind of seem a little bit like Leviticus or some of the, of the uh, or First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, where you get the same idea repeated over and over again. And from us, in, in the 2023, when we read about the boundary being here and the boundary being here, it really doesn't mean a whole lot to you, does it? You know, I, this should matter that, that this tribe went from this river to this little place, and this tribe was in this river to this place. But our eyes just kind of like, they roll back. And I can't wrap my head around. They got land, right? Uh, but for the people of Israel moving forward, if you think about this being a book of record of God's faithful dealing with his people, then when they look back and they go, why does my tribe live where it does? They can go back to the word that they have and go, oh, this is how Joshua and the heads of the, our tribes split up the land. This is how God allotted it for us. So then moving forward, all of the tribes, all they have to do is go, why do I live here? Oh, why can't I live where that guy lives? We go back and, oh, this is how the Lord gave it to us. 
But what I want us to take away this morning as well is that while chapters 12 through 21 might be kind of a flyover version of what we do, we read over it, we gloss over it, we read it quickly, what is being carried out in these chapters is God's functional carrying out and fulfilling his promises to his people. It's, it's the way that God actually did what he had promised to Abraham over 400 years earlier. This is like the, the practical, logistical, functional way that God is carrying out what he had promised to do. And so it's, a, it's a really remarkable in that sense that God actually did what he had promised to do for a guy who had no children. That he had made him into a great nation, that he had given him land, that he had caused him to be blessed in a way that Abraham, 400 years earlier, could never have imagined. Now in Joshua 12 through 21, it's like, oh, that's all kind of starting to come together. It took a really long time. Uh, One of my favorite ideas as we've walked through the book of Joshua is just to ask the question over and over again, what was happening 400 years ago from now? You know, that's a lot of world history that took place. And for 400 years, Abraham's offspring didn't see the functional provision of the promise that God had made to Abraham. They had it in their, like, it was in their back pocket, right? I have this IOU. It's going to, like, it's going to be worth something someday. But for 400 years, they didn't see the fulfillment of it. And now in Joshua 12 through 21, as God delivers them over and begins to hand them their tribal allotments, they are seeing his very promise to Abraham filled out in their midst. And so as we walk through, I'm going to kind of give you just a cursory overview of some of the chapters. We're going to uh, pull out uh, some, some key passages in, in a couple of the chapters as we just give you some, uh, uh, some, some context, some frame of reference for what's happening in these chapters. And then we'll, we'll finish really the, the summary verses at the end of Joshua chapter 21 are, are going to be some of the most uh, formative for us as, as we ask, what does this mean for you and for me today? as New Testament believers in Christ. Uh, and I, and I just by way of reminder, when God made these promises to Abraham, Abraham was living in a tent, not owning land in the place that God said, this, all of what you see will belong to you one day. And in his lifetime, Abraham owned none of it. In fact, the only thing that Abraham ever owned was a plot of land to bury his wife that he was then buried in, and then his son was buried in it too. They never had 12 acres, and they're just like, we're just going to wait until this neighbor dies and we'll buy 12 acres. Then we'll wait for this neighbor to die and we'll buy it. Like, they didn't have anything. And the promise is looking forward to what God will do. So in, in Joshua chapter 12, just summary fashion, the first six verses, verses 1 through 6, are a reminder of how God had delivered victory to Moses on the other side of the Jordan River. So uh, outside of the land of promise, before they ever crossed over in Joshua chapter 1, Moses had defeated some kings, and there was two and a half tribes that said, we want our inheritance to be over there, not where God promised the land would be. And so there's, there's two and a half tribes, Reuben, Manasseh, and Gad, who are going to possess land on the other side of the river. So which is why Joshua chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 reminds us that this is how God delivered that land to Moses and to the people. Then in verses 7 through the end of chapter 12, 
It's a recounting of all of the kings that Joshua conquered inside of the land. And it lists off of the kings, and it makes it for some really fun uh, hooked-on phonics lessons. If you want to work on those in front of the mirror later, work on your pronunciation and just like, how do I say this word? Uh, but he delivers 31 kings over to Joshua and to the people of Israel, which are going to be the fu- fundamental parts of where the rest of the people of Israel, nine and a half tribes, are going to have their inheritance. But the picture of this is that God is paving the way in chapter 12 for chapter 13 to take place, which is the inheritance or the handing out of the land tribe by tribe to the people of Israel. And so in chapter 13, verses 6 through 7, we get this picture that Joshua is now old, and he's getting ready to be looking forward to the point where he's no longer with the Israelites. And so it is time to give the land to the people of Israel, and yet there are still people left to be driven out of the land. And so God makes a promise, and then he also commands Joshua to do something. So he says, All the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misrephoth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so there's still people left. God gives a a still provisional promise. Drive them out. I will drive them out in front of you. There's still people left, but get on with giving out the inheritance to these nine and a half tribes. So so chapter 13 will recap verses 8 through the end of the chapter, how Moses gave the land on the other side of the Jordan to the other tribes that we've already mentioned. Um, so there's an inheritance on that side of the Jordan. Chapter 14, inheritance on this side of the Jordan. So all of these 31 kings and all of their cities that have been taken over, uh, how will that be allotted out in verses 1 and 2? We get this picture of how Joshua and the people are to do this. So these are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. And the idea, kind of lots, of, for we, we're, again, this is not language that we use. Uh, the closest thing that we would say to this is that to be determined by lot is almost to be determined by throwing a dice, right? And, and by the throwing of the dice, in the book of Proverbs, it says the Lord even is over that. He controls the falling of the dice to land where it will. But God commands the people to, to divvy it up by, at random, but by size. So a larger chunk of land goes to a larger tribe, smaller chunk goes to a smaller tribe, but they're, they, they're not fighting over it because the Lord is the one deciding in their midst where they will live. And in that process, you have Joshua, the high priest, and the heads of all of the tribes that are gathering to see how the inheritance falls out. Now, that sounds like fun. I've not ever received an inheritance that I know of. Um, I have some, some, some people in Nigeria that have offered me some uh, by email. Maybe you have too. Uh, you should not take them up on that. But can you imagine if at the end of it, it was like, hey, so uh, maybe it was your parents or grandparents that so-and-so died. I was so happy to have you. Well, not really happy, but you know, we're here today in order to deal with the estate. And they decided that the way that we would do this is by rolling dice. How many of you be like, sign me up for that? Like, 
I actually already duct taped like my name underneath all of the things that I wanted, right? Um, it's a different way, and yet the Lord is superintending all of it. And in chapter 14, as we continue to walk, the first tribe to, to receive, or the first person that receives their inheritance is Caleb, in chapter 14, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. And Caleb, we, we referenced it last week, so I won't go too far into it, but Caleb was one of the 12 spies. He was the representative of the people of Judah who went into the land 45 years earlier to spy out the land when Moses was in charge to tell the people what the land was like and, and to encourage them to go in and to take it. But instead of encouraging the people to go into the land that God had promised, 10 of the spies said, there is no way that we can do this. And they caused the hearts of all the Israelites to melt inside of them. So they go, I, I don't think we want this place that God promised after all. It's too difficult. But Caleb and Joshua, two out of the 12 spies, are the two lone survivors of a generation that get to go into the land and receive an inheritance. And so Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through the end of the chapter is really kind of important because Caleb is receiving what he believed he would receive 45 years earlier, and yet he's missed out. Think about this poor guy. He's missed out on 45 years of living in the land because of the disobedience of everybody else. That would stink, if I'm just being honest with you. But as the faithful spy, he comes to, to Joshua and he says, Moses said I would get an inheritance and I could choose where it would be. And he picks a place that, that comes to be known as, it's known as Hebron. Which, and again, that seems insignificant to us. But Hebron will later on, it'll be for seven and a half years, it will be the place where King David has his throne. It's where he rules from. It's seven miles-ish from Jerusalem. So seven and a half years, David will have his throne there. Thirty-three years, his throne will be in Jerusalem. It's a place that, that will, in the future, have a lot of significance for the people of Israel. And Caleb sees God's faithfulness in giving him the land. You keep going into chapter 15. The, the people of Judah receive their inheritance, and it, and it, and it gives you the laying out of uh, which villages uh, go to which families and, and all of the number of cities that the people of Judah inherit. Verse 63 ends with this little side note that seems, again, insignificant. The Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So just a little Bible nerd trivia for you. Uh, this means that the, the book of Joshua is recorded sometime between now and when uh, King David is on the throne. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, David goes in and captures Jerusalem, drives the Jebusites out, and sets up the throne there. And that will be the place where God chooses to have his temple Dwell among the people of Israel. So this, this again, if we just read it at full speed, you know, that seems, that seems like a weird name of people, and that seems like a weird city. But it's pointing to this future hope of yet what God will do among his people. And I promise we're going to pull this full circle. Just hang with me. Joshua chapter 16 and 17 is the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. Uh, who become half-tribes. The half of the tribe of Manasseh is on the other side of the river, half the tribe of Manasseh is on this side of the river, and all of Ephraim. And then in chapter 18, we get a little bit of an interesting moment because 
Now, all of a sudden, a couple of tribes have received their inheritance. But in verse 2 of chapter 18, it says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. So they'll divide it into seven portions, and then they will draw by lots or cast lots for their inheritance. But you get this picture. There are seven tribes that are, are sitting there, and Joshua asks a pointed question. How, basically, how long will you sit on your hands and not go into what God has promised you? Can you imagine, like they have been waiting, the people of Israel, 400 years to see the promise given to Abraham filled out. There's other tribes that are settling into their places. They're, they're, they're rising up, they're, they're casting lots, and they're going into their place. And then there are seven tribes that are just like in the background going, I don't know what's going on. And, and, and Joshua says, I'm like, how long are you going to do this? Do you want to go in or not? God has promised to give it to you, so, so take some action. Go, go do what God has given you to do. And there's part of that, I think, that preaches to you and to I. God has spoken a whole lot of things. He's commanded some things to his people. And I wonder if the same question would be laid to you and to me. How, how long are you going to sit here and examine the promises of God without walking in them? How long are you going to, 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 to mull over the commands of God, and, and which he has also promised his provision for, and yet not walk in them? There's some urgency to this. God has promised, God has spoken, so walk in it. Is it possible for you and for me that we could, we could be really good at knowing what God's word says, and yet, Joshua or the Lord would say to us, well, how long are you just going to study it? Isn't it time you go walk in it? When are you going to put feet to this bad boy? Like, there's some really amazing promises that you know in your head, and yet you are not walking in by faith. How, how long are we going to do this? So, so how How long? How long are you you just going to sit there and look at the land from a distance, the land that God has promised to give you, that you've seen him functionally handing over kings to you so that you would go live in it? And then you go, I guess I've got time. There's seven tribes that were procrastinators, maybe. Or seven that had just gotten so used to not living in the land, they don't even know what it looks like to do it. And yet God said, Here's the land, I'm giving it to you. I've driven people out in front of you. This is the lot. We're casting lots, We're, we're effectively doling it out. Are you going to walk in it or not walk in it? How long are we going to do this game? And so they they send their spies into the land and they come back to Joshua and they begin to cast lots uh, before the Lord, verse 10 of chapter 18. And Joshua again begins to apportion out their inheritances for each one. And so the rest of chapter 18 is the inheritance for Benjamin. Chapter 19 is for Simeon and the remaining tribes, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, and Joshua. Uh, Joshua is the final one. He, he's the a spy just like Caleb was, and yet he's the last one to receive his inheritance. 
But God faithfully delivering to each tribe the thing that he had promised to give them. And there's a common refrain that happens throughout this, that in all of these places, the Levites have no place, which is according to God's word. So chapter 20 is how God gives the people, the Levites, who are the priests of the people of Israel, he gives them cities of refuge that are scattered throughout the land of Israel so that they can dwell in the midst of all of the tribes, um, teaching them, but then also that these places would become cities of refuge or places where the word of the Lord would come and judge rightly when there is a uh, when there's discrepancies among people. Chapter twenty one is the the pasture lands that are given to the Levites, so uh, they get cities, but then where do they raise the 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 the, the uh, livestock and the crops that they have. Again, they don't get one conglomerated area, but they get all these little sections within the land. And then it closes with, and I know that was a, a really quick overview of 10 chapters, but it closes with the section that we're going to fix most of our attention on this morning. In Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, it says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And catch this in verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Huge moment. All the thing about this, all the things that the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, summed up in these two verses, three verses, where it says everything that he had promised to them, he had accomplished. Nobody had been able to withstand them because the Lord had fought for them. He gave them the land that he swore to give to them. They have possession of it. He gave rest to them just as he had sworn to them. Uh, None of their enemies had withstood against him as he had sworn to them. Every good promise that the Lord had made to the house of Israel came to pass. It's an interesting question for you and for me as we think about this. Maybe the first question is, do we really believe that every promise that God has made will come to pass? Do we really believe that everything that God has spoken in his word will be accomplished? And hear me really carefully on this. There was a period, a long period of time for for Abraham's offspring, for the tribes of Israel, where if you had asked them, do you have the land yet? Has the good promise of the Lord come to pass yet? And they would have said, no. We're slaves in Egypt, so no. Has he delivered you from all of your enemies? No, we're in Egypt, we're slaves in Egypt. Do you have peace on every side? No, we're slaves in Egypt. Fast forward 45 years, 
and you get it. So 400 years of longing and waiting, and then within a 45, and really it didn't even have to be 45 years. It was only 40 extra years because they had failed to listen in the first place. 40, 400 years not seeing the promises come to pass. Knowing them, hearing them, Maybe sitting on them in the back pocket and yet not seeing them functionally take place. And then in three verses in Joshua, it says, everything he had promised, he's done. And it raises the question for you and for me, what good promises and inheritance are promised to the New Testament believer in Jesus? What good promises are made to you and to me if our faith is in Jesus? Right? So if, if, if we have put our hope in Jesus, not in ourselves, and when I say we put our hope in Jesus, you go, why would I need a hope in Jesus? Why would I need this faith in Jesus and, and rather than a faith in myself or my own abilities? The whole scope of Scripture speaks to the fact that God has made us to know Him and to walk with Him. All right, he's, he's made us to know him and to walk with him. Like, so our, our primary purpose as people, as individuals, as humans, is to know God and to walk with him. And yet from the very beginning of humanity, the humanity that is made to know God and to walk with him, our response, not just Adam and Eve's response, but our response as well, has been, that sounds good, but I really want to pursue my own things instead. And we pursue our own desires, we pursue our own direction, we pursue our own agendas, we pursue our own ideologies, we pursue our own worldviews in the way that we think it ought to be, and we run away from the God who has made us to know him and to walk with him. And from the very first individuals, there's a separation that has come between us and God because it, well, all, of this, all of this running after our own things could be summarized in one word, which is sin. We, uh, we have all sinned, and, and in sinning, we fall short of the holy and perfect God who has made us to know Him and to walk with Him. And no matter what we do, there's nothing that you and I can do to bridge that gap, to fix the divide that exists between us and God. And the, and the sadder part of this is that there is really no inkling, apart from God doing something in us, there's really no push or draw for us to bridge that divide anyway. Apart from God, we go, I'm, I'm doing perfectly fine. Or if we go, I'm not doing perfectly fine, I'm going to try something else that will make me perfectly fine. And we might try something else that will make us perfectly fine. We go, well, that's not really working either, but I can try something else. And the world seems to tell us that there's all kinds of endless opportunities that will make us perfectly fine. And yet in all of those provisions, we find that they fall woefully short of bridging the divide between us and the God who made us to know him and to walk with him. So much so that the scripture tells us that apart from Jesus, if we're, if we're on this side of the gap, Jesus is holy, God is holy, and we are separated from him by our sin, that, that scripture tells us that we are enemies of God, and we are deserving of his complete and total right, good judgment, which means a complete separation from him, not just for my lifetime, but forever and ever and ever and ever that never runs out. And this is the crazy thing about God. Because if, if you're like me, if somebody doesn't like me and doesn't want anything to do with me, 
See you later. If somebody hurts me over and over again, I go, I'll put some space in there. You're not going to hurt me anymore. And the crazy thing about God is, is that we have functionally said, God, I'm okay without you. I don't need you. I'm going to do my own thing. And yet God chooses, chose to send his eternal son who took on flesh to pursue us. And And not just to pursue us, but to die for our good, right judgment that we deserve. God took all of our junk and put it on his eternal son, Jesus, who died in our place. He, like, let me back up one second and say this another way. Jesus died for people who were his enemies and who were hostile towards him. The scripture even tells us, like, while we were still enemies, when we were still dead in our sin, that's when Jesus died for us. He did not die for us when we were at our cleanest, best, most polished, ready to present ourselves to him. He died for us when we were absolutely rejecting him and running away from him. Taking our punishment and our sin and our shame and our guilt on himself in order to give to us his perfect righteousness, which bridges the gap to the God who made us to know him and to walk with him. And scripture tells us that as many as receive Jesus, as many as say, Jesus took my place, I don't have to rely on myself, I'm trusting in his finished work on the cross, dying in my place, I'm going to receive that free gift, put on his righteousness by faith, and God chooses, like God finds me acceptable. nothing that you and I could do other than accept the free gift that has been presented towards us in Christ. So then the question is, what good promises on top of that exist for those people who have placed their faith in Jesus? As if that wasn't enough just by itself. So the first good promise would be that, that those who put their faith in Jesus really will be with God forever and ever in a perfect relationship that is free from any sin, suffering, shame, or guilt. In the reality that Revelation speaks to that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no no longer be any death or sadness or anything broken in the world. He promises that to those who receive him. I don't have time to share all of the good promises that God has made to his people. But I want to take us to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, just to give us a, a really quick overview. And again, this is not exhaustive of the, the good things that God promises his people. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Starting in verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for, notice this, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him 
we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. There's way more, again, than, than just in this passage, and there's way more in this passage than I can do justice to in the short time that we have remaining. But it says that He, in Christ, God has adopted us as sons through Jesus. Now, before you get offended and say, why doesn't it say adopted as sons and daughters? Because the, the context of, of, of an inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1 is that what he is saying is that to everyone who trusts him, male and female, he is giving a full inheritance to. In a time and a context where full inheritance was only given to male children, he is saying to all believers in Jesus, you receive, if you're in Christ, you are adopted as fully inheriting children of his blessings. I don't want us to get too caught up on the language of predestined and things like that, but what I would say about this is, is, is and we can, we, can, we can slug it out uh, about what does predestined mean in Ephesians 1 and throughout Scripture, but one of the things that I would draw out from this that it really highlights is that if you are in Christ, you are not in Christ by accident. There are not some people that God goes, I really want you in the family, and how did you get here? If you have faith in Jesus, you, you're, not, you're not an accidental adoption. You're not brought into the family willy-nilly or haphazardly. He knows you. It, and, and that ought to be scary on one hand, because if He knows us, then He, he knows us. And he knows all the things that nobody else knows about us. He knows all of the hidden things in our hearts and our minds, and he knows us. The things that, we, that nobody else knows about us. Now, Jason and I joke about it because I don't remember even what show she watched, but, uh, but it was a, a spouse said about their spouse, like, I know you better than you know yourself. It's like, unless I tell her specifically things, she doesn't know everything that's in my mind. Right? So even our most intimate human relationships that know us the best, they still only know what we allow them to know. And yet God knows all of us completely. And so if you are in him, he knows all of the, like all, he knows all of your junk. He knows all of the mess. But if you're in Christ, he knows all of the mess and yet he still calls you into his family and says, "You're my son, you're my daughter with whom I am pleased." How often do we view our place in the family as like, oh, I, he is so disappointed to have me here. 
if you are in Christ, he's not disappointed that you're in him. First of all, if he was disappointed in sinful people and didn't want them in the family, he never would have died for anybody. Because that's all he had to die for, was sinful, messed up people. And yet he willingly brings us into the family with a full, in, like, and not even just on a probationary period and say, like, let's see how you do in the family. Ooh, he doesn't play well with others. Kind of rough around the edges. No, he brings them fully in, full inheritance. says that he is poured out on us in verse 7, the, the, the redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, and notice this, according to the riches of his grace. In verse 80, he talks about the, the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. I don't use the word lavish very often. Ever? I'm trying to think right now of a context where I would use it. But the idea of it is like it's it, like the riches of his grace. And, and, and if you were to eat, like if you were to eat at somebody's house and it's the mashed potatoes, right? Like lavished is not like they pull out a teaspoon and like there's your mashed potatoes. They pull up with the food and they just like it, it's heat, like it's overflowing off of your plate. Not, he's not giving it skimpily or scantily. He's giving it abundantly, overwhelmingly, just like pouring it on and on and on. Making known to us the mystery, like he chooses to make known to us the mystery of his will, which is bringing people into his presence through Jesus. He lets us in to know his mind and uniting all things to him. He says, in him we've already obtained an inheritance in verse 11. Having been predestined, having been brought in according to the good purpose of his plan and his his choosing. Like again, not by accident, but his active choosing to bring us into the family, allowing us to come in. So that we might... Uh, who are the first to hope in Christ? Verse 12 might be to the praise of his glory. Well, then in verse 13, he says that, that those, those of you who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, again, received him by faith, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And the idea there is that idea of sealing is in, in this time frame, if you were to send a letter, right, you would heat up wax, you would put the wax in there, and you would seal it right, with the ring of whoever was, was the one who was sending it. And the idea is, is it is the, the, the promise of, of the good promises that God is making for you, for, for your eternity with him, are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee that he will finish what he has started in you. That your inherit, he, he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So if we, if we just... Think about some of these things. Do we, do we really believe this is God's good pleasure and these are his good promises to his people? To bring them in as sons and daughters. To cause them to be new creations. To give them eternity with him. To give them abundant life. To give them his presence in trials and suffering. To, be, to, to grant his spirit to lead and to guide them. 
to be with him not just now but forevermore. That he will go and prepare a place for us. That he will return in the same way that he left. That none who hope in him will be put to shame. That sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Do we believe these things about God and his promises to us? Do we believe that, as Joshua says, that not a single word of what he has promised will fail to pass? In other words, he will accomplish everything that he has promised. Do we believe that we truly will inherit the kingdom of God? Do we truly believe that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you and for me? First Peter. Do we believe these things? One of the challenges I would give you is to, as you read through Scripture in the next few days, like take note of the promises that God has made and ask a very simple question. Do I believe that God will actually do this? And then if God will actually do this, go back to Joshua chapter 18, verses 3 through 4. If God will surely do all of the things that He said He will do, if He is faithful to see them through, I ask you the same question that, that Joshua asked the people of Israel. If all these things are true, if God is faithful and He is steadfast and He will accomplish the things that He said He will do, how long will you put off going in to follow His promises? If He said all these things and they are, they are entirely true and we say that they're true and we say that we can take Him to the bank and He will not disappoint, we may not see them now, but we know that He will one day bring all things to the right end, and all of his promises, none of them will fail to pass, how long will we sit there looking at them without action? What is he asking us to do to to walk into the things that he has commanded and the things he has promised? If he's laid a command, will he not surely provide the provision that he says he'll provide? If he's promised, will he not provide? Will we be a people who know the promises and yet fail to taste them because we just stand at a distance and admire them? Or will we be a people who functionally, actively walk in the promises and the commands that God has given us as his people? And the, the very simple question really is, do we, do we trust him? Do we really believe him when he speaks? Do we really believe what he has passed on to us to follow? Do we really believe that we'll be a people that are not disappointed on that day when we see him face to face? Even if in this lifetime we don't see the fullness of it. Do we have as an anchor for the soul the promises that he has spoken, knowing that there is a day where he will make all things right. The world might look really goofy right now, but will his promises fail to stand because of a goofy world? By no means. 